Hello and welcome to this solo episode of Hot Philosophy. Today you have your solo host, Sky, and as always, this is the podcast where we break down the biggest of philosophical topics and bring them into the everyday. Today's episode is on the topic of consciousness, or the question of, what is that little voice inside my head? Why do I have an inner life? Why do I think and feel? This episode was inspired by my time in Professor Brian Greene's class Origins and Meaning at Columbia. The class tells the story of the universe from its beginning to its end, from the physical and philosophical perspectives. It introduces those key ideas governing our physical universe to those of us who might not otherwise encounter them. Basically, you go in thinking it'll fill your science requirement and you leave a new person. A standout topic for me in the class was consciousness. Why? Well, first off, it is intimately tied to what it means to be human, or what makes us any different from a rock or your pet. Second off, science does not fully understand consciousness yet, so there's incredible room for debate and discussion on what it is. Finally, our understanding of consciousness has deep implications for free will and freedom, or whether we are really the architects of our own lives. So today we are taking a rare turn into the scientific, and I might even use the word quantum mechanics. Let's get into it. You might have brushed up against this idea of consciousness in dinner party conversation when the resident quasi-philosopher whips out Descartes' ubiquitous, I think, therefore, I am, or his contention that to think is to exist. This notion of thought is so elevated in our understanding of human life that it is enough to confirm our very existence. But what does this really mean to be conscious or thinking or aware? Is it really all that we think it is? We can break down our discussion of consciousness into what philosopher David Chalmers calls the easy and hard problems of consciousness. Let's get the easy problem out of the way first. The easy problem of consciousness is a matter of understanding the mechanics of brain processes and their role in things like responding to stimuli or causing behavior. As Chalmers articulates, these easy problems are easy because they concern the explanation of cognitive abilities and functions. All we need to do that is specify the mechanism that can perform the function, and our methods of cognitive science are well suited to answer that type of question. When you smile or frown, the easy problem can be understood as understanding those physical mechanisms that enable you to smile or frown. Meanwhile, the hard problem asks what causes you to feel the sensation of happiness or sadness driving you to smile or frown. The hard problem is hard precisely because it is not a problem about the performance of functions. We know how particles interact with one another and have an understanding of how the tasks of the mind work. So we are left with this hard problem of consciousness that is at the heart of this conversation and debate. Once we know how the tasks work, what causes those sensations that make us feel so human? There's nothing in that mathematical description of how particles interact that hints at the inner experiences that they manage to generate. How in the world can mindless particles come together to yield inner sensations? And this is the heart of the question of consciousness. There's a spectrum of answers to the consciousness question. Let's consider variants of the physicalist view first. Physicalism contends that every single thing in our universe is physical. So traditional scientific methods solely utilizing physical properties of matter 
can explain consciousness. It's nothing beyond the physical. All that we lack right now is the level of detail needed to actually understand the processes that comprise consciousness. So I'm going to take us through some variations on the physicalist approach. First, we have the integrated information theory put forth by neuroscientist Giulio Tononi. This theory asks the question of what distinguishes the variety of information processing that results in conscious awareness from the many other types of information processing that do not result in consciousness. The theory contends that information resulting in conscious experience is unique on two fronts. First, this type of information is tightly stitched together. What does that mean? For example, say you order your favorite takeout. When it arrives, you're seeing it and smelling it, as well as experiencing abstract connections of the meal to happiness or people you've eaten with or a connection to the culture of the food. And all of this information is united in your cognitive experience. The second key feature of conscious experience and the information associated with it is the range of things you are capable of holding in your mind. It's enormous. This enormity of what you hold in your mind makes each conscious experience clearly differentiated from the many others you could be having. So let's think about, you know, this experience of takeout versus a digital file. With a digital file, there's, there's no higher communication or differentiation of that type of information, no connection to some abstract thought. Whereas with this experience of takeout, there's so many layers of information that go into creating that experience. So conscious awareness is information that is highly integrated and highly differentiated according to this theory, whereas most information lacks these qualities. Tononi goes so far as to quantify this differentiation and integration into a variable where higher levels of the variable actually indicate greater consciousness. So with a sufficiently high level of this variable, anything can be aware. I gotta say the first time I heard this, it sounds a little ridiculous. How can anything with enough of some variable actually be conscious? Like, how can a number quantify consciousness? So Professor Green articulates a point that I think is important to note. It's already shocking that our tiny brains, these brain masses, have consciousness. That's shocking in its own right, so how is anything else more shocking than that? So this integrated information theory identifies the qualities a system has to have for there to be consciousness, but it still doesn't answer the question of why consciousness feels how it does. Tenoni's response to this is that we don't have to explain how conscious experience emerges. Really, our task is to determine what types of conditions are required for a system to have such experiences. And that response to me is still a little unsatisfying. You know, I still want to know the answer to that question of why. Setting aside that theory for the moment, let's consider another physicalist approach, Graziano's attention schema theory. To understand Graziano's theory, imagine you see a red apple. To discuss that experience of seeing a red apple in physical terms would be a matter of discussing electric fields and oscillations and meters per second. That is the physics of red light. The notion of red 
is a purely human construct and does not occur in that physical explanation of what we are seeing. So Graziano contends that your mental representations are always simplified. So something like red is the mind's schematic simplification of what it sees. Practically speaking, the simplification frees up your brain for other life-supporting purposes and has some evolutionarily significant function. So Graziano extends this and contends that you continuously create a schematic mental representation of your own state of mind. When you look at a red apple, you're not only creating a schematic representation of the apple, but of your apple-focused attention. All of the features that you bring together to represent the apple are augmented by this additional element of summarizing your own mental focus. The apple is red and your attention is on the apple being red. So by ignoring the underlying physics of what's happening, the neurons and signal exchanges that create this focus, your brain is instead sketching the attention and that sketch is what Graziano contends is our consciousness or awareness. So when our tendency to simplify is applied to our own focus, our own brain's focus, the resulting description ignores those physical processes that are responsible for the attention. And so that's why, you know, this feeling of consciousness and thought seems like it's just floating in our heads, like it comes out of nowhere. It's because our evolutionary tendency is to simplify. So the hard problem only seems hard because our schematic mental models suppress cognizance of the very mechanisms that connect our thoughts and sensations to the physical underpinnings. This kind of approach is incredibly appealing because as Graziano presents it, the main task is to better map out our brain and understand it with unprecedented detail. But is it true? Is this really just a matter of greater detail? Let's consider another extension of the physicalist approach, which asks what the role of quantum mechanics might be in understanding consciousness. As a very basic surface-level overview, quantum mechanics is the most accurate theoretical framework we have for describing physical processes meaning that theoretical calculations match up with experiments almost perfectly. Yet, despite all this accuracy, quantum mechanics faces a measurement problem. Quantum mechanics makes probabilistic predictions, yet we experience a finite reality. Particles are simultaneously occurring wherever their probabilistic paths dictate they will be. So quantum mechanics has to resolve this disparity between this fuzzy quantum reality as told by the equations, and the familiar finite reality we experience. Some have argued that consciousness might be the key there. The puzzle and disparity between the realities becomes puzzling only once we use our conscious experience to report on this definite reality. So those standard quantum laws cease to apply only when our conscious awareness is brought to bear, so there must be some kind of other process that's taking over that allows us to have this single reality. So on this theory of consciousness, it becomes a very important participant in quantum physics, telling us that as the world evolves, all futures are eliminated except for one, 
either from reality or at least from our cognitive experience. And the challenge with any kind of objection to this argument is that all those objections themselves require being filtered through our conscious minds. So it seems that there's no perfect argument against this relationship between quantum mechanics and consciousness. So these physicalist views we've considered, integrated information theory, attention schema theory, this relationship to quantum mechanics, they've all told us that consciousness can be answered and understood purely along physical lines and all we're missing is a full command of the existing science. But is this convincing to you? Can humans really be reduced to nothing but a series of physical reactions? If this question makes you uncomfortable, you're not alone. I certainly feel that way. And my peers certainly feel that way, as you hear later on in the episode. So driven by this discomfort, by the physicalist explanation, let's consider our strongest defense against physicalist views, or the knowledge argument. Let's consider what the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines as the canonical formulation of the knowledge argument philosopher Frank Jackson's story of Mary. Mary is confined to a black and white room and learns only through black and white materials. She masters everything there is to know about the physical world, including everything about the brain. If physicalism holds and everything is physical, she should know absolutely everything about the world. So one day she's released from this black and white room. The question is, when she sees something like red roses for the first time, will her first experience of the color red lead to any kind of new understanding? Or has her education sufficiently endowed her with everything there is to know, such such that she'll just shrug at the sight of real red roses? The first time reading or hearing this story, it seems obvious that Mary's first direct experience of color will lead to a broadened understanding of human perception. So if we take that intuition for granted, then that should imply that all of the physical knowledge in the world regarding conscious experience still leaves something out, leading us to the conclusion that the physicalist explanation of consciousness is just inadequate. So the story of Mary is critical in raising the fundamental question of whether consciousness can really be purely physical, or is there something new to be gained by direct experience? Naturally, the story of Mary has sparked many responses, so let's take a look at a few of them. Philosopher Daniel Dennett contends that the concept of complete physical understanding is so far away for us that we underestimate the explanatory power it would have. So under this theory, Mary really would be able to discern that inner feeling or sensation of red. It's just such a far-off possibility for us that we can't even grasp it. Philosophers David Lewis and Lawrence Nemerau offer another response. They argue that Mary doesn't acquire new knowledge, but she acquires a new ability. So she has this new ability to identify and imagine this inner experience of red, But that doesn't really constitute a new fact that stands outside her knowledge from learning before. So all she's gaining by looking and experiencing that red rose is a new way of understanding and interpreting old information. One response Jackson offers to this argument, because I think it's a pretty convincing one, this idea of ability over non-physical knowledge. 
He contends, suppose Mary received a lecture on skepticism about other minds when she's in her black and white room. Then outside, she sees a tomato in normal conditions and has a sensation of red. Her first reaction is that she now knows more about the kind of experiences others have when looking at tomatoes. But then she remembers this lecture that she has in her mind and worries. Does she really know more about what their experiences are like, or is she just over-exaggerating, creating a generalization from her one experience? So she ultimately decides that she does know and that skepticism is mistaken. So why was she so worried? Was this a question of her abilities? Jackson contends no. That her abilities were a constant throughout. So the only thing that she could have agonized over was whether or not she had gained factual knowledge. So despite the fact that Jackson offers this response in 1986, more recently, Jackson has argued that this is no longer the case. See, we're so accustomed to learning things about the world through direct experience. So because of our comfort with this way of learning and viewing the world, we assume that these experiences are the only ways to acquire this knowledge. Jackson now says that's unjustified. While Mary's learning process is not familiar to us, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't offer the same understanding. So her complete command of physical knowledge would actually allow her to determine what it's like to see red. So this raises the question, is the story of Mary just a reflection of our discomfort with unfamiliar types of knowledge acquisition? You know, I have to say it's not reassuring when the leader of an idea or school of thought grows skeptical of their own ideas. So we still haven't even exhausted the spectrum of theories of consciousness, and we definitely won't be able to in the span of this podcast, but it would be remiss not to mention Chalmers' prominent formulation of the knowledge argument, which can be seen as kind of a dualist argument on consciousness, adding further bridging principles to explain how experience arises from physical processes. So Chalmers commits to the notion that Mary does gain new non-physical knowledge upon leaving her black and white room. And he contends that the usual explanatory methods of cognitive science aren't enough. Those methods have been developed precisely to explain the performance of cognitive functions, and they do a great job of it, but not of experience. He crystallizes his criticism in the following question. For any physical process we specify, there will be this unanswered question of why should this process give rise to experience? So his key conceptual point is that the explanation of functions just does not suffice for the explanation of experience. He recognizes that it is tempting to see that all sorts of puzzling phenomena of the mind have eventually turned out to be explainable in physical terms. But each of the problems, he says, each of these puzzles were about observable behavior of physical objects. So because of this, these were the type of phenomena that could always be explained by a physical account, while consciousness could not. Take the example of the subject P.S. So P.S. had experienced right cerebral damage, so when shown images, failed to report details on the far left side of the image. And yet, when asked which house they would rather live in, P.S. chose the photo that didn't have flames on the left side of the house, So this suggests that even though this subject, P.S., didn't have conscious awareness that they were seeing this blaze, the information was still influencing 
their decisions from behind the scenes. So, you know, when we learn that we can understand challenging things about the brain like that, it's very, very tempting, Chalmers recognizes, to assume that the physical can explain everything. Yet his response is that those types of problems are ones that could have always been explained from the physicalist stance. So to understand consciousness, Chalmers calls on us to look beyond known physical qualities and build a new intellectual framework, a reframing, where we count consciousness as a fundamental property. And when there's a fundamental property, there are fundamental laws. So a non-reductive theory or a not purely physicalist explanation of experience will add new principles to the existing laws of nature. And these new principles will explain why we have consciousness and carry that burden in a theory of consciousness. By taking experience as fundamental, there's a sense in which this approach doesn't tell us why we have experience in the first place, but this is true for any fundamental theory. Nothing in physics tells us why there is matter in the first place, but we don't count this against theories of matter. So to get into what a theory would look like under Chalmers. A non-reductive theory of consciousness would consist of a number of psychophysical principles or principles connecting the properties of physical processes to the properties of experience. We can think of these principles as encapsulating the way in which experience arises from the physical. He proposes a couple of these principles in his 1995 paper. We have the principle of structural coherence or the isomorphism between the structures of consciousness and awareness or those mechanistic properties we discussed earlier. So this principle reflects a fact that even though cognitive processes don't conceptually entail facts about conscious experience, consciousness and cognition are closely related. A second principle he lists is of organizational invariance, stating that any two systems with the same fine-grained functional organization will have qualitatively identical experiences. So then he takes those two principles as constraints and develops a theory from them, the dual aspect theory of information, stating that information, or at least some information, has two basic aspects, a physical aspect and a phenomenal aspect, or one closely tied to experience. So Chalmers is basically suggesting a new era of science focused on interpreting the data of inner experience to build upon our existing physical framework. There still remains extensive skepticism that to understand consciousness, science needs to travel to this place that Chalmers proposes to introduce this new fundamental quality. But his theory is so appealing in allowing for some consciousness that is not truly explicable by the physical, but in addition to it, that understands that they're closely related, but still places it as fundamentally different and significant to our experience. I want to take a moment here to share my own thoughts and those of some of my classmates on consciousness before briefly thinking about free will and freedom. I think we all want to believe in the non-physical view because it tells us that there's something truly unique about the human experience and mind. It fuels what Ernest Becker identifies as the human obsession with the heroic in his book, The Denial of Death, or man's obsession with stories about evading or overcoming our ultimate physical constraint or our impending mortality. We are wired to think we are somehow different, and I think it is rooted in that terrifying, nagging voice in all of our heads that we too are physical beings subject to mortal concerns. We want the non-physicalist explanation to be true, 
because the physicalist one seems to devalue consciousness by making it merely physical. But is that true? Is it really devalued by physicalism? Professor Green proposes that we should be in awe that the brain can accomplish all that it does with nothing more than the same ingredients that hold a coffee cup together. Yet even with Professor Green's take, this awe at what our brain can do from the physical perspective, my instinctual reaction to that is fear. I experience that same kind of existential dread that I feel when I consider mortality. That same sense of fear is invoked when I consider the notion that consciousness is merely physical. So to conceive of consciousness as something greater than physical is comforting. It's what we want to hear, but is it true? Can we really defend it? Or will we look at all these conversations in 200 years and think they were trifling debates among people who still had a limited view of the world? The one thing I hold on to that makes me want to take on Chalmers' view is that gut feeling that human experience really is different. When I think about Mary, I think about the emotional response of seeing the color red for the first time. But would she be able to foresee this emotional response with enough information? Or would emotion just be a new means of interpreting old knowledge? Like, would it go along with that ability argument? What is so great about experiencing the color red firsthand? I want this non-physicalist explanation to be true, but I have trouble defending it. Let's hear from some of my friends. Julia is up first. In terms of the Mary experiment, I do think that she sees red on her new television monitor. Because even though she has a theoretical understanding of what red is before, she's never actually seen it. She, she couldn't possibly know what that experience is like without having actually experienced it herself. So to me, conscious experience is predicated on you having actually experienced the event. It can't just be theoretical. Next, we have Matt. In response to whether consciousness can be explained purely physically, my initial response is I do think it can be explained purely physically, but it's hard to kind of grasp this idea that we have some sort of like deep desire that it's not physical, that our consciousness is something special, that we hold something different than the world we observe around us. But I think, at least from all the evidence I've seen, that it probably is just something to be explained physically that we just have yet to be able to do, that our science hasn't progressed to that point yet. Now onto Mary's question, which is somewhat similar, and I'll have a very similar response. Um, I don't think Mary would see something new, and this is only because everything would be explained physically, that she'd know it all, right? She'd have the complete understanding of the color red before she is able to see it. But for the same reasons as whether consciousness can be explained physically or not, I think the idea of Mary knowing everything and having this idea of, you know, the inner workings of the human mind and understanding what the color of red might, you know, look like from a very scientific perspective, we just can't grasp that idea. It's so hard to wrap your mind around knowing something so concretely um, that you're able to imagine it in such a way. And so I don't think, yeah, Mary wouldn't see anything new or learn anything new by experiencing the color red firsthand. But it's just something so hard to understand and grasp that maybe it's not even the best sort of comparison to think about. 
Now we have Ari. The makeup of consciousness is a really interesting question. I think a lot of people like to believe that there is a non-physical aspect to consciousness, that there is a soul, uh, because it sort of gives hope of something existing outside of ourselves, that when we die, for example, uh, we will live on through our soul. That is not something I believe in. I think consciousness is purely physical. It is really just the makeup of different impulses in our brain. And I actually think it's so physical that in the future it will be possible to represent exactly our consciousness, that it would be possible to create an exact copy of someone's consciousness uh, through computer simulations. And that actually sort of forges a whole other interesting question, which is, if you can create an exact copy of someone's consciousness in a computer, does that computer representation of their consciousness actually become uh, them? Finally, we have James. Consciousness is magical. Regardless of whether it stems from some undiscovered fundamental force, or whether it's simply the inevitable result of complexity. It is magical because it gives us life. Life is born out of a subjectivity which conscious thought yields to us, which is a sort of purposeful ignorance which allows us to look beyond an indifferent universe and the equally apathetic truths which govern it. Take fundamental physics to the extreme, and the universe is nothing more than an arrangement of particles, and yet the lives we lead in that world are so incredible. The universe serves as nothing more than a canvas on which we can project an endless and ever-changing string of stories through which a certain magic actually transforms those particles into the very creations of our imaginations. Experience and stories are magical in the realest of possible ways, and they need not have dragons or wizards to do so. Even the simplest and most boring of stories bears a fundamental magic which shape the particles around us into living beings. We often think of science as truth and truth as being fundamental to our existence as a human race. However, science shows us a truth that is fundamentally disconnected to the experiences we feel each and every day. The hard problem of consciousness serves as a line in the sand marking this deviation and any individual fully guided by this rationality might come to a similarly dismal truth about our own experiences and about ourselves. For me, personally, stories solve this hard problem as they serve as a magic which births conscious life from those conscious list particles. Certainly, a physicist would probably view this conclusion as wrong, incorrect, idiotic, maybe illogical, and I would respond to them absolutely. And yet, I still don't think that that's necessarily a reason to reject it. Maybe we value truth too much. I certainly believe so. After all, I don't really see a reason to admire it. Truth cannot change the world. I genuinely believe that. But yet, the creativity of fiction can change our worlds. And I think that that is an opportunity that consciousness affords us. I think the spectrum of responses my friends provide points to just how viscerally human the question of consciousness is. Julia stands on one end of the spectrum, committing to the non-physicalist view, while Matt and Ari take on that physicalist stance. Though Matt recognizes the challenge of taking on that type of view, and Ari goes further and considers its implications for our future. Might we be able to replicate the individual through an understanding of consciousness? Then James seems to marry the two ends of the spectrum, recognizing the beauty of the fiction of consciousness, though also the potential physical description and reality of it. But he asks whether that scientific truth is really so important in understanding the consciousness question. Consciousness is more of a purposeful ignorance 
that grants life the beauty that it does have. My question for him is whether the truth really can't change our perception of the world. Is purposeful ignorance really the best fulfillment of man's intelligence? Though we don't have agreement on this consciousness question, I want to take a look at its implications for free will and freedom. So if we take the physicalist response to be true, the implications for free will and freedom are extensive. If we maintain the physicalist stance, we're nothing but a series of particles whose behavior is totally governed by physical law. So wherever the fundamental laws are at work, there's no real place for free will. Maybe the human combination of particles isn't subject to the same fundamental laws, but that would be counter to everything that science has showed us so far. Perhaps under quantum physics, because it only predicts likelihoods, we have a loosely more, you know, free, capable reign on our lives. But still, quantum physics deterministically defines likelihoods. So our choices seem free because we don't witness nature's laws acting. And our senses don't reveal the operation of nature's laws. But... Just because we don't experience it doesn't mean it's not happening. So despite this grim view on free will, Professor Green notes that our sophisticated internal organization allows for a rich spectrum of behavioral response that goes far beyond any other organism. So perhaps we should reconfigure our understanding of freedom to be not from physical laws that we can't affect, but we have this freedom to exhibit behaviors that are not available to most other particle collections. So is this really freedom in any true sense? Can we really understand the freedom to act within our behavioral confines as defined by the laws of nature? Can we really understand that as freedom? When I think about free will, I find myself asking, If we really need to experience a sense of true free will and able to feel that we are acting sufficiently freely, just because I have this new knowledge of the physicalist reality, does this really stop me from experiencing the illusion of free will? And isn't the illusion of free will enough? Or do we need ultimate truth in order to feel satisfied with our human experience and some ultimate definition of freedom? Personally, I don't think so. So just as it usually goes with these episodes, I don't have a concrete answer that I dearly believe in on the question of the hard problem of consciousness or the question of free will. But what I do come away with is an expanded understanding of what it means to be a human, whether I like it or not. Prior to this class that I've taken, and in particular this topic of consciousness, I had no perception of this view of physicalism, of this understanding that we really are particles when it comes down to it. So whether I fully subscribe to that or whether I take on a view more like Chalmers, I'm still trying to figure that out. But what I can tell you is I think I know better what it means to be human and that despite all of these theories that we have to think about, at the end of the day, I have the experience that I have of being human. So I think that when we're confronted with these physicalist views, it's very easy to become disheartened. But what I take away from this experience in this class is that I've been granted this illusion of some kind of special human experience 
And what I can do is to learn the most and make the most of the experience I've been granted. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I've linked additional resources about everything I talked about today in the show notes. A huge shout out to Professor Green and my TA Santi, who was actually just named a Rhodes Scholar. This class has been fundamentally life-changing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pop Philosophy.